We think women need to talk more openly about money because money really matters. It shouldn't be embarrassing or confusing. Join the conversation. We'll be discussing a whole range of topics which will help you get comfortable with your finances. Money Matters, brought to you by AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome to another Money Matters podcast. I'm Laura Suter, and joining me is the lovely Danny Hewson. Hi, Danny. Hi, Laura. On this episode, we're going to dig into inflation, what it is, how it's affecting all of us, and why interest rate hikes are being used as a way to bring it down. Very timely, obviously, and it's also something we're asked about a lot. So it's going to be our one big thing this week where we're going to really dig into explaining it for you and going back to basics to help you understand how it's affecting your financial well-being, but also what to expect from next year. Yeah, we've also got a very special guest, best-selling author, financial guru, Laura Waitley has been chatting to our Laura. And if you keep listening, we'll give you details of how you can win a copy of Laura's book, Money, A User's Guide. Yeah, it was so great to catch up with Laura. So she's given us lots of great tips on how not to let money damage your relationships, whether that's family, friends or your partner, because it's obviously the root of so many arguments, particularly at this time of year when budgets are pretty stretched over Christmas. (laughs) I've already had an argument with my other half over money because I suddenly realized that I'd got more gifts for one of our kids than the other. And he's like, well, how much have you spent? It's like, well, actually, they're getting money this year. How much are you giving them? So, yeah, we've we've done that. Um, you probably are not quite at that point with yours. No, I'm not. She's not getting cold, hard cash this year. She's getting some fairly lacklustre presents, if I'm honest, but she'll be excited about unwrapping them. So that's the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> and talking about um, arguing and how tricky things are this Christmas with, you know, the amount of money that, everything seemed to be costing so much more just to to buy what you would normally buy. So that is an incredibly neat segue to get us into this part of the podcast. So inflation, let's dig into exactly what that means, because I don't know about you, Laura, but that seems to be the one big thing that I have spoken about more than anything else this year. And In a nutshell, it's a measure of how fast prices are going up. And the number that we hear most about is something called CPI, the Consumer Prices Index. And that is calculated every month by the Office for National Statistics. Now, at the moment, 10.7%, that is the CPI figure. So basically, that means stuff that costs £100 this time last year, is now costing £110.70. So it's an average. And some things clearly will have gone up by a whole lot more and some things by a little bit less. Although, frankly, it, it doesn't feel like anything isn't going up by a massive amount. Now, CPI is really important because it's used for things like pay negotiations, how much pensions and benefits go up by, all sorts of things like that. And it's calculated every month, as I say, by the Office for National Statistics. And they send out a team of people to buy over 700 different goods and services from about 20,000 shops, big and small. So, you know, your huge supermarket right down to your tiny little convenience store. And they do it all across the country, so about 100 different places. And then they work out how much the price of stuff has changed, both over a month and then a year. And what goes in the basket changes as well. So 
if our habits changed, and COVID was a big example of that, after the pandemic, they added hand sanitizer and they took out men's suits and workplace sandwiches because we're all dressing down a bit and we're not going to the canteen. So it gives you a really sort of rough idea of how prices are rising by how much, how quickly. Yeah, and so as you said, that 10.7% figure, which is the latest one we have, is that average of that overall basket of goods. But within there, there are some items that have increased in price dramatically. And there are also some items that will have fallen in price. So I thought I'd delve into the figures for this year and look at what's risen in price this year um, and what might have maybe fallen, although it doesn't feel like anything's fallen. Um, The biggest increase was from gas. So this is the gas that gets delivered to your home. Um, That's up by 132% this year. And electricity, likewise, is up by 65%. And obviously that feeds into the fact that all of our energy bills have gone up. Um, If we delve into food, that's one of the big increases that people have seen this year where their food shopping has soared or they're spending the same amount of money and getting much less. Milk is up 41% this year. So that's the biggest increase of food items. Mayonnaise is up 36%. Honeydew melons also up 41%. So this kind of shows the level that the ONS goes to when it's looking at price rises for individual items. Um, do you want some weird one? Out, weird ones, Danny? <laughs> they weren't already weird. Honeydew <laughs> melon and mayonnaise. It's a great mix, that one. <laughs> so airport parking costs have risen by 55%. Um, mascara has risen by 28% and Euro tunnel fares are up by 38%. Um, but there have been some things that have fallen in price. So actually quite a lot of tech, when I was delving through the figures, a lot of technology stuff. So TVs have fallen in price by 14%. Things like computers, laptops, computer games have all, all dropped by about 13%. Um, secondhand cars have dropped in price. They had big increases last year. Um, and comparatively this year, they've dropped in price by about six percent but i really struggle to find many food items that have actually fallen in price um onions and lemons were pretty much all i could come up with but i do have some good news ahead of christmas bailey's or kind of similar own branded versions of it has dropped by almost 10 percent and new world white wine has stayed the same price so there's some glimmers of hope for us there but i think what that goes to highlight is that while the ons looks at this average basket in reality everyone's individual inflation rate is going to be different depending on how much of their money they spend on some of these things so if all you've been doing this year is spending your money on baileys then obviously you won't have seen prices rise but if like pretty much everyone you've been spending a lot of money on energy on gas and electricity that's when you'll have seen some of your price increases so hopefully that kind of helps explain how we get to that overall big figure and i know that there's been a lot of talk about lower um earning households having a higher inflation figure and that is because they've got less choices so more of their income is spent on things like energy and food and not on things like holidays or babies where they might have seen price cuts so uh, i know there's been a huge amount of talk about how those individual inflation rates affect people with less income, less disposable income, a lot harder than others. Um, Just to sort of explain or to dig into a little bit about why prices have been going up so quickly, 
we need to look back to when they actually started going up. So after COVID lockdowns, you remember everything was completely shuttered, uh, spending stalled, prices had stopped rising in the same way. Now, the Bank of England has a sweet spot of 2%, which is basically how quickly they want prices to go up. In a healthy economy, we don't want prices to go down. That's deflation. We'll talk more about that in a moment because you might be thinking, and it's it's a fair thought, but that we'd like prices to come down because everything is too expensive. But 2% is the rough target that the Bank of England has, and it's its job to try and keep the economy as close to that as it can. Now, Back at those lockdowns, inflation stopped hovering around that 2% sweet spot, and it came in really cool. In fact, for a couple of months of 2020, inflation was just 0.2%, 0.3%, which sounds great right now, but actually it's dangerously low. So the Bank of England turned on their magic money taps that it meant that credit got cheaper for businesses and for people. People started to spend more. Okay, that's one thing. But a few other things happened then. We had supply shortages of some stuff, semiconductors. Do you remember all that talk about the microchips that go into cars, phones, computers? That was one. Timber was another. Lots of businesses were making changes to help them reopen safely after COVID or when we were still sort of in the middle of the different variants and lockdowns. And also a lot of homeowners were doing improvements. So the cost of anything with timber in it went up. By August last year, that was really beginning to filter through. So August 2021, CPI was 3.2%, which sounds great about now, doesn't it? When you compare 10.7, but still manageable. And then you had other countries reopening and the price of oil went up. So that meant that the price to fill your car up went absolutely through the roof. And by this time last year, Inflation was 5.5%, so beginning to really hurt us. And then in February, we had Russia invading Ukraine. We got sanctions on Russian oil. A lot of commodities like wheat come from Ukraine and from Russia. In fact, Ukraine is called the world breadbasket. I didn't know that, but there we go. So the price of bread, cereals, pasta, vegetable oil went up. And with the price of energy going up as well, that affected the price of anything that needed manufacturing. And in the UK, we also had an added issue of Brexit affecting prices because it was the end of the transition period. We've got more red tape, so things were more expensive to import from Europe. And a quirk that is purely a UK quirk was the energy price cap, and that kept Average prices fixed for six months, and then after six months, we got these big hikes, big jumps in inflation, and that is why we got a 41 year high inflation hike in October after prices changed. And that was despite government intervention. So, 11.1%, which is where it was, it could have been much higher, Laura. And so, I think one of the questions that I get asked a lot is, what does inflation have to do with interest rates, and why are interest rates rising because of inflation? So, I'm going to attempt to explain this in um, hopefully simple terms. Danny, you can call me out if I don't achieve that. Um, 
effectively, the Bank of England, which is in charge of raising interest rates, um, raises rates to bring inflation down. And generally, this works by making borrowing more expensive and making it more attractive to save because the interest rate that you get on your savings increases. So that means that people are less inclined to spend money because they don't want to borrow to spend, but also because they're incentivized to save that money rather than spend it. And so prices should fall as there isn't as much demand for those items. So if we think about it in a way that some people might be more familiar with, if you think about if you're selling your house and you get loads of interest in it and lots of people want to buy it, it's then probably going to sell for over asking price and the house has a more expensive value attached to it. Conversely, if there are fewer people who want to buy the house, who want to can afford to borrow the money to buy that house, then you'll get fewer people looking at it. And so then it might just go for asking price or maybe even less than asking price. So that's one example of how those kind of higher borrowing costs can impact prices of things. But obviously, the Bank of England isn't just looking at the housing market, it's looking at the price of everything from mayonnaise to Bailey's. Well, I now will be looking at the price of Baileys because I think that I definitely need some for my Christmas uh, festivities <laughs> um, and that might help lift the doom and gloom. And so far, it's probably felt quite full of doom and gloom, this podcast, but it's OK. There are tentative signs inflation has peaked. In November, inflation came down from 11.1% to 10.7%. That also filtered through to Europe as well. So the rate at which prices are rising cooled there and also for the second month in a row in the United States. And the United States is really important because when inflation is high in the United States, their central bank, the Federal Reserve, has to do exactly the same thing that the Bank of England is doing, which is raise interest rates. And because they've been raising rates, the dollar has strengthened. And when the dollar is strong against the pound, the stuff that we import costs us more because the pound is worth less. And it's not just the stuff that we bring in from the US. It's also things like oil because that is traded in dollars. And of course, if it's costing us more, then that affects inflation. So inflation is falling a little bit. It is expected to fall more through next year, although the Bank of England has warned it expects inflation to come out at an average of 7% for the year. But it does expect it to start falling significantly from the middle of next year and to get back to around the 2% target in two years' time. Two years seems like a really long time, Laura. That does, that that, I, I mean, you promised some cheeriness there and then you've told us it's two years away, but <laughs> I admire your positivity of selling that in more positively. And here's another bit that's even less positive as well, because although we're talking about inflation coming down, it doesn't mean that prices are going to come down. No, it doesn't. And that's the crucial thing. So when we talk about inflation falling, that means that the amount that prices are rising by isn't quite as large as it was before. It doesn't mean prices are falling. And so what we'll see in that average figure or what we're expecting to see is that prices will just rise by a little bit each year. But that doesn't mean that we're going to go back to some kind of like pre-COVID era prices for things. There obviously is the caveat of when I was looking through those individual items, there will be individual things that will drop in price and other things that will rise in price. So energy is obviously the one we've all got our eyes on. And if that drops in price, 
that would really help out a lot in terms of that overall inflation basket. Um, but yeah, we're not going to see kind of a dramatic return back to previous prices, which means lots of these price hikes are now baked in. That's just how much milk and mayonnaise might cost. Which is not great when you've got brownies to bake, which is on my agenda for the day. And I'm going to have to get the Baileys to go with the brownies afterwards, but obviously not until much later in the day. And, you know, amidst this backdrop, um, I, I think it does lead many people to start really thinking hard about their Christmas budgets and all the pressures that come often with overspending, with debt. You've got arguments about household finances. Now, we did talk about debt in our last podcast, so do listen back if you are worried about your finances. And we've also got an article on debt uh, and how to tackle it on our Money Matters pages. You can find those by Googling AJ Bell Money Matters. And if you sign up to our newsletter, You'll never miss an article or a podcast. And we'll also give you another really good reason to sign up at the end of this podcast. But now it's time to hear from Laura Waitley, best-selling author, financial journalist, and all-round nice person. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't come across some tricky financial situations herself, because money can obviously be a divisive topic. She's got some great tips on how to talk about money with your partner, with your family, and even with your friends, which she's been researching for her new book. So obviously money is a source of tension in a lot of relationships, whether that's romantic relationships or families or siblings or even friends. Why do you think it's still such a tricky topic? I think there's quite a lot of shame still around the topic of money. And as soon as shame is involved in anything, we clam up and don't want to talk about it. And it's easier to keep it to ourselves. And I've spoken to quite a lot of couples counsellors and psychotherapists and psychologists and almost all of them without fail have said they think money is still a taboo topic and often particularly in romantic or family relationships which in a way I think sometimes can seem surprising because I think there's this idea that you share everything with someone that you're married to or in a relationship with or living with and um, but sometimes it can be really hard to open up to those that we're actually closest to because we fear judgment or perhaps we have very different views on things. So um, a lot of them see couples or families come into the counselling room, the therapy room, having never talked about money before um, and coming to it because they absolutely have to. There's been a crunch point or a sort of transition point in their lives where it's become a, a topic that's now unavoidable. Um, I think some of the shame around money comes from either a sense that we don't have enough and we should have more, or sometimes the reverse, that we've actually got more than others. And obviously we're in cost of living crisis at the moment. Money is a topic that is everywhere and people are talking about privilege a lot and where money comes from. And I think there's a still sense that if you haven't earned money in your salary, perhaps your parents have helped you out, you've had an inheritance, you are wealthy because your partner is, um, that actually that's something to feel a bit embarrassed about. And, and so I think people are reticent to talk about it for that reason. Also, a lot of the therapists and counsellors I spoke to have said that we grow up thinking money isn't something to talk about. So that's actually a very strong kind of cultural idea that we don't talk about money and that it's a bit of a topic that it would be impolite to ask about. You don't ask someone who's just had 
told you they've got a new job or what's your salary? And I, I would question why we don't, but we're so in, it's so ingrained in us not to do that, that it can feel uncomfortable to, to, to break out of that pattern and be the first person to say, okay, I think we need to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, I think it's so uncomfortable, isn't it? It's a weird. A friend texted me the other day. She was working out her pension and she was like, I don't really know if I've got enough in my pension. How much do you have in your pension? And immediately I was like, I don't I don't want to tell you that 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 feels really awkward to talk about and then I thought why it's like this pot of money that's for the future it kind of doesn't have an impact on my lifestyle now but also it's good to have a barometer of everything whether that's the size of your pension or kind of salaries the more people talk about salaries the more people will fight for pay rises if they realize they're being underpaid like talking about money actually is beneficial but it was weird that my initial reaction to a very close friend was no I don't don't want to tell you what's in my pension part totally and I don't think you know I'm the same I don't talk uh, you know I've written about money for a long time as a journalist but I don't talk comfortably to my friends about it for example I actually asked a friend recently for the first time, how much she earned. And it was a lot more than I um, expected her to say. And I felt so embarrassed afterwards that I'd asked her. I thought, oh, I wonder if she thinks I've got some sort of ulterior motive for asking. <laughs> um, you know, like, I don't know, I'm some, sort of going to think, oh, well, this is how much she earns. Therefore, it slightly changes your opinion of somebody or makes me, me or other friends feel uncomfortable. So, yeah, it is weird that we have that instinct and that instinct of like, oh, this makes me feel embarrassed or a bit weird does make us close down often as you say it it is practically so helpful to to talk to those that care about us <laughs> about their different positions so we can understand that the choices that we make and when um, um, the consequences of those and so when we're thinking about I guess it, let's start with kind of romantic relationships so partners husbands wives um when we think about that what are the kind of common dilemmas that come up you've obviously spent a long time chatting to people as a journalist but also um researching this book what are kind of some of the real crunch points that come up around money and and how do people resolve them I think a huge one now um and this is one I faced in my own life <laughs> when I was in my 20s is the cost of housing and people moving in together and how on earth you're supposed to figure out who pays the mortgage or who pays the rent and how much and how you split that if you've got very different sums of money. Um, and often now the bank of mom and dad is involved. So it's not just about figuring out your salaries between you as a couple. It's often about involving parents or in-laws um, who may be gifting money. We know that Bank of Mum and Dad is one of the top 10 mortgage lenders now. So, so many people are buying with parents' help. So I think that that dilemma is very common of I would like to, or I need to, which is increasingly the case, <clears throat> share the cost of a house with somebody else because it's really far too expensive to live on your own or to pay a mortgage on your own or to pay rent on your own. But how do we make this fair when you have a nice sum of money towards the deposit that your parents have helped you with? Um, and I've got an okay salary, say, but that isn't going to help towards the deposit. And how do we? So that is one a huge dilemma, I think, that people face at the moment. And unless you're married, and so, so many people aren't when they first buy a property together, we know that there are no real legal rules 
and, and fewer sort of social ones really about how to split your money over a house. So I think that's a source of huge tension. Also um, often big transition periods in relationships are what, what often therapists will say cause real tension. Um, and the biggest is often having children because quite often and to the point that you've had a child, it may be that you can have quite separate finances even in a romantic relationship quite comfortably, especially if you're earning similar amounts. But of course, as soon as a child comes along, you have to think more collectively. Often people don't, <laughs> but you are going to have a period of time when someone who has a child, and often we know that that's still a woman in a relationship, is going to take a big income hit, potentially for a long time. And how are you going to make that work as a family? That can be something that is a, a source of, of tension and often difficult for couples who've never talked about money comfortably before. And a, a lot of experts and financial advisors will still say, and I think this is very interesting, that when you have a heterosexual couple, um, often it is still the woman who uses their finances, if you like, still sees that their finances contribute more towards the children so childcare is often seen as a woman's issue rather than a sort of family issue or a family finance issue often women will buy christmas cards or presents for family or children's shoes um this is kind of anecdotally but i still think that there, there often is that that split and, and one particular advisor i said spoke to said often um you get a, a man in a relationship who will tend to invest in a you know might be more interested in investing or want to buy a car or buy a boat if they've got lots of money <laughs> whereas often the woman will be focused more on kind of day-to-day -day household finances so I think sometimes challenging some of those assumptions and ways of splitting things we often don't but actually sometimes you need to talk about why that might be happening and what gendered ideas are surrounding those things. I definitely think that's true. And when I think about, you know, my group of friends who um, mostly all kind of had kids or are having kids at the moment, for a lot of them, that is the first time that they talk with their partner about money is kind of when they're on maternity leave and they've realised that their their pay is obviously dropping and that babies cost a fair amount of money. And But I almost think that's that's like the worst time to talk about money. You're in a period where of like big transitional change, um, your hormones are going insane, <laughs> you're adjusting to this new life. Um, and it kind of seems like the worst time to me to have really rational, honest, frank conversations about money. So do you think it's the case that um, should couples always be talking about money right from, you know, almost the start of their relationship? Or do you think it is okay for them to kind of um, ignore some of those big issues until it hits a crunch time? I mean, I suppose it's better talking about it at some point than never but actually um counselor from relate said exactly this that often couples don't prepare or plan at all so it is kind of at the crunch point at a crisis point at which they're thinking how do we do this and that is when it can be particularly tense or particularly difficult another um apparently big crunch point is retirement that can be really really difficult for couples and again you know we all know that that probably will come at some stage so actually having a bit of practice and a bit of preparation and trying to take the heat out of it because often again lots of psychologists will say the reason that we um 
feel angry often about money is because of worry and anxiety. Like worry and anxiety can lead to the most difficult arguments. And if actually we can communicate with each other that I'm really worried about this, or this is making me very anxious, and that's the reason why I want to talk about it, we can kind of take some of the heat out of it and, and try and see it from the other person's point of view early enough. But yes, if you're having it when a baby's screaming and there's not a lot of money left in the account at the end of the month, <laughs> that is probably not going to be a time for a sort of calm, rational discussion. Because as you say, that's what this sort of topic requires. And so away from kind of romantic relationships, um, money's obviously also the source of quite a lot of angst in families. So whether that's how parents allocate money to children or how different siblings deal with money, maybe if one is very responsible with money and the other isn't. Um, what are some of the kind of common situations or um, areas of stress that you came across while, I don't know, either writing the book or um, from your years as a, a journalist when it comes to families and money? often what you'll find in a family is that people haven't spoken about what money might mean to them. So they will have assumptions that, and they'll think, well, you know, you'll see a scenario where a parent will die and leave different amounts to siblings. And everyone's guessing why that's the case and can cause a huge amount of upset because they can think, well, it must be that that parent preferred one sibling to the other, when actually it could be that their thinking was, well, that sibling needs more money in in later life. And unless you've opened up about that and your motivations and perhaps expressed that what you think is fair, because I think we always, we have these ideas that fairness is obvious and it's obvious what's fair and how we split things, but often it's not. Um, So that can be a big source of tension. And we know that families are more complicated than they used to be. You know, people remarry later in life with, maybe a property, big pension or other investments, and they're blending families and they have maybe stepchildren, half-children. So the kind of complexity of how you deal with your current family and perhaps um, ex-partners and providing for other children, that can be a real source of heartache for people if if a child feels that their parent has remarried and is you know, perhaps someone who is wealthier and and another child is getting more than they ever did. So there aren't any easy answers, but I do think um, it's important to acknowledge that this is a difficult area and try and be as open as possible. And if you need a third party to manage that, then it's worth talking to somebody. Um, That is also, I think, a very contemporary modern dilemma of um, parents helping adult children with childcare. And we still don't put monetary value on unpaid care for children, for example. Um, But actually, this is causing quite a bit of tension among um, people who are now worried that their retirement funds are being in some way a bit depleted because they're trying to help adult children or just their time. Because, you know, so, so many grandparents now spend quite a lot of time looking after grandchildren because they're parents can't afford high costs of childcare. So we've got these new sort of concerns about whether actually older people in their 60s, 70s are having, have got enough money because they're feeling that they should help their children. And it's that should is always a bit of a dangerous one. (laughs) These ideas of things we should do rather than things we maybe want to or need to do. Um, So I think those, those areas can be very, very difficult too. 
And what about money between friends? I think that's often where people find it the hardest. It's kind of, you could have friends for a long time, but take very different paths in life and end up with very different budgets and salaries. And then you come to, I don't know, arrange your Christmas meal out or a night away with friends and find that some people want, you know, the eight course tasting menu at the Michelin starred restaurant and other people would rather just go down to the local and have, you know, a burger and a pint. How do you navigate that without people just, I mean, just talking about that already makes me feel uncomfortable. I can feel me like (laughs) tensing up. How do you navigate those kind of situations without offending anyone or making anyone feel bad because they don't have enough money or have too much money? I think the cost of living crisis has been interesting in that I think it has made it slightly easier to raise the topic in a group because I think everybody is a little bit concerned right now about the bills or about the future and what it's going to look like. So I think that's helped like slightly open the door to a conversation of, look, shall we, before we book this eight eight course menu, shall we just have a little bit of a think about how everyone is feeling about it? Um, I mean, I believe that if you're brave enough to be open from the start yourself in a friendship situation, that others are relieved that somebody has, somebody has um, opened up the topic. Because often you worry about bringing it up because you think, oh, well, other people aren't going to want to talk about, talk about this either. So I think if you've got the kind of ability to be open about your own situation, you can be doing your friends a big favour. I think it's also about trying not to be too, and it's difficult, easier said than done, but dropping some of our judgment that we have on ourselves and on others, because we know that different types of professions are remunerated in very different ways. And that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is more successful than somebody else. But I think we still sometimes associate someone with lots of money as being more successful. I was speaking to somebody recently who used to work for a debt, a debt collection company. And they um, spoke to a lot of people with a lot of money who were in serious debt. And including a footballer who was on a massive salary, but was still in a lot of debt. And I think sometimes it's easy to assume based on someone else's lifestyle and I think we do this a lot with friends and we certainly do it on social media that because somebody uh, looks wealthy in our books or looks successful that somehow they're doing something that you're not and you think oh maybe I don't want to admit that I'm not you know I haven't found the secret NFT that's making me as successful as they are Um, (laughs) so I think you know trying not to prejudge people and ourselves helps a little bit it's definitely a tricky one because we all we all dance around the subject because some people some people have a property some people don't because they're still renting um because they can't afford a deposit and if we're not open about how we got that deposit and I don't think you have to be but I think it can be helpful to say well actually I'm on the housing ladder because mum and dad helped or I'm on the housing ladder because my partner had an inheritance or well actually I was able to live with a friend for many months and that helped me save I think we're doing each other a favor if we offer and are a bit open about perhaps where some of our financial advantages come from I think that's so true because otherwise people who don't have those benefits, don't have those privileges are kind of sitting there saving money each month for a deposit thinking, why is everyone kind of leapfrogging me? Why has everyone managed to achieve this thing that I 
can't achieve. But you're right, I think, particularly with property buying, but I guess all areas of life, there's so much of that kind of hidden wealth or hidden privilege or inheritance or um, that people just don't aren't aware of and, and don't acknowledge. And probably, you're right, probably would make everyone a lot happier if we just acknowledged it and talked about it more. And then I think people wouldn't feel so ashamed because people do feel ashamed where they've inherited money and they they feel embarrassed talking about that don't they yeah and I think um sometimes we can have this sense that there are milestones in life that we need to reach and if we haven't reached them at a certain point we're failing in some way and I think looking back on say our parents generation or how we grew up can be a bit uh, dangerous because there is this assumption that oh well you buy a house when you're young, maybe you get married, maybe you have a child. And that's actually been really challenged because of the cost of housing at the moment. So actually this idea that, oh, all my friends are on the housing ladder and that's what you're supposed to do and I'm not yet or I've not got this big house that I imagined I'd have by the time I met my partner or settled down. And actually talking a little bit about why that's difficult now and whether that's actually for some people impossible. And it's not about how successful you are, but sometimes it's about what your parents, um, what position they are in, or, or some of the other ways in which luck has played a part, I think can help people feel like there isn't this one path I have to take. And I don't have to own a property to feel that I'm nailing it and getting it right. And I think actually in a friendship group, you can really support each other by talking about this subject. Um, and realising that it is very difficult for lots of people. Um, and that there are other ways of spending money too, that that um, just because that was what used to happen doesn't mean that it should, should still happen necessarily. What's the one kind of big lesson that you've learned from, from researching the book and from your time talking to people about relationships and money? What's the one kind of big takeaway or big thing that's surprised you maybe um, that you've learned? I think probably how common it is for people to feel like they can't open up about this subject. I think I assumed people would be more relaxed <laughs> within their relationships and that there would be more harmony among most couples and families. And the reality is that that's often not the case. And most people do find it quite difficult um, to share their finances and how they feel about them actually with people they care about the most. Sometimes it's much easier to talk to strangers than it is to talk to those you're closest to. So if you've got to that point in a relationship where you think, okay, we actually really need to talk about money more, we're not addressing these issues, what's the best way to actually practically approach that? What kind of things should you do to make sure that that's a successful conversation rather than one that ends in kind of shouting and tears? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the one of the things that lots of experts will say is plan the conversation you're going to have which sounds a bit excessive but what we often do in lots of difficult areas of relationships is one person will be ruminating on it all day and thinking about it all day and getting their ideas about what they're going to say in place and then it'll get to the evening and it'll become a, a topic of like, right, okay, let's talk about money. And the other person is caught off guard, hasn't been thinking about it, has been, mind has been elsewhere and you're not in a, in the, in the same place. 
and that can cause an argument rather than a calm discussion. So I think actually saying, look, we need to talk about money. Shall we find a time where we're both feeling free and calm? So planning the conversation helps. So the other thing is that I think we think we only need to have one money conversation. So you just sit down and you'll broach the subject and that's it. And you don't have to talk about it again. But obviously money is a topic that we have a lifelong relationship with and we have to keep renegotiating. So actually try and keep the first time you talk about it fairly brief and keep coming back to it. And the more you do it, the easier it will become. But know that this isn't something that you can just deal with once and then forget about and, 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 and be secretive about again, because actually you do need to keep revising things as life changes. Lots of unexpected things can happen as we saw with COVID or the <laughs> cost of living crisis that things can come up. You can lose your job, some can become ill. Um, so you need to get to a p- place where you can review what you decide comfortably rather than think, right, we're going to make this contract and this decision and this is exactly how we're always going to do it and it's set in stone forever. Something that you can return to. Thanks so much for that. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been really nice. The brilliant Laura Waitley there. And as promised, we are giving away five copies of Laura's book, Money, A User's Guide. To enter, all you have to do is subscribe to the Money Matters mailing list by 11.59pm New Year's Eve, Saturday the 31st of December 2022. To do this, you can visit our website, ajbell.co.uk forward slash money matters, or go to our Instagram page at ajbellmoneymatters and click the link in our bio. Five lucky winners will be chosen at random and contacted via email by 5pm on Tuesday, the 3rd of January 2023. So for terms and conditions, visit our website and good luck. Yes, good luck. It's a great book. I have a copy on my bookshelf. And New Year is the perfect time to think about getting to grips with your finances. So while you're also signing up to that, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and we'll bring you loads more interviews, jargon busting and tackling tricky topics in the new year. Um, Do leave us a review if you have time or get in touch on social media if there's anyone you'd like us to talk to, or a particular subject you want us to dig into or a really tricky financial topic that you just don't understand and you want us to explain. Well, I've certainly learned a lot today, just explaining inflation and really digging into it. And hopefully it's really helped you as well. Um, now it is the time of the podcast that I absolutely love. It is confession time. And here is Laura's. I think probably it's actually a bit of a um, planning one for myself is I have only really recently had a pension and there's not very much money in it. Um, I've been freelance for lots of years now and I didn't, um, in my first job, have a auto-enrolled pension. It hadn't come in yet. So despite telling everybody of the importance of saving for the future, I find it really, really difficult myself. Um, I find it difficult to juggle keeping enough aside now and and locking it away for the future. So it is something that I really regret not starting sooner because I know the sooner you start, the more more you'll have in the future. Um, But hopefully I'm not alone with that. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it's interesting though, I think, because I think um, when you write about this stuff and you write articles about how you should start early with a pension, it, but it's a bit like kind of doctors making the worst patients. It's, you know the theory of it, but actually putting it into practice is sometimes trickier. Exactly, yeah, definitely. And the same in investment. I know I should be investing a bit, but I find it very difficult to resist the temptation of now versus tomorrow. Um, so yeah, I need to take some of my own advice sometimes. And so I think that goes to show that a bit like doctors being terrible patients, those of us in the know about finances aren't always the best at organising our own finances. I think it's also good because it just shows that it's for all those people out there that think that they're behind on organising their finances or that don't have a pension themselves. Actually, not everyone is getting it right all the time, despite what you might see on social media. No, and I've spoken to women in their 40s who've not got a pension and then finally sort of thought, actually, do you know why it's time to do it? It is never too late and it is such a good thing to do just to make sure that you are looked after as you get a bit older. And um, I turn 50 next year and so certainly pensions are something which is very much on my mind. But I have to say I'm not brilliant at everything and I know one of your confessions Laura which did surprise me was that you don't check your credit score very often I don't for shame you've outed me now on the podcast (laughs) um no I don't and actually uh when you and another colleague were talking about this I didn't even know you were meant to check it that often quick like regularly so yeah that's my confession thanks for outing me I made it almost all the way through this year with everyone thinking my finances were perfect happy Christmas that is my gift to you <laughs> and that is it for this episode of money matters before Danny reveals any more of my secrets it's our last episode for 2022 and what a year it's been thank you so much for listening to this podcast why not give your friends and family a brilliant gift by introducing them to money matters and just a reminder of that giveaway we're giving away five copies of Laura's book Money a User's Guide so all you have to do is subscribe to the Money Matters mailing list by the end of New Year's Eve visit ajbell.co.uk forward slash money matters or go to our Instagram page and click the link we'll pick five lucky winners and let you know in the new year but for terms and conditions visit our website good luck and thank you so much for listening goodbye bye Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial.